All right, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 93. Psalm chapter 93. The title of our message today is Our Sovereign King. And as you turn to Psalm 93, I'll give us some introductory notes to kind of set the stage. Because our God is sovereign, we must believe Him, trust His Word, and live holy lives for His glory. But living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, how does the church thrive? As sinful men grow more sinful and are judged rightly by God, holy men must grow more holy in order to be able to withstand the buffeting waves of temptation, persecution, and suffering that assail us today. If we hope to stand for the truth and live lives of sacrifice to our God and King, we must recommit to these three things that have been so diminished in the American church. And they are as follows. Number one, we must recommit to a high view of Scripture. We must rightly understand the supremacy of God's Word. Sola Scriptura, or Scripture alone, is a conviction that we must live and die on. And as soon as we allow the world to convince or coerce us into, any, into allowing anything else, we have lost our only firm footing in this battle for eternal life and death. Second, we must recommit to a high view of God. We must rightly perceive God as the holy, transcendent, sovereign ruler of all. When we allow churches to teach the pews, to, to reach the nations, and to entertain the masses through man-centered doctrines, the obvious counterweight is that we begin to have a low view of God. Men will never rise to the occasion set. They will never seek to be holy. They will never seek to offer their lives as a living sacrifice. And we'll never speak against the norms that infiltrate the church from culture if we do not restore an elevated view of God. And lastly, we must recommit to a high view of the pulpit. One of the critical markers of the Reformation uh, was the return of the church to the centrality of the preached word. We know a lot about the theology of the Reformers, but it's uh, not often that we think so much of the fact that they were first and foremost preachers. Now, we must not only return to the training of such men, but also to the active and anticipatory listening of the congregation to the word-driven, Christ-exalting, God-glorifying, spirit-empowered preaching of the word. The church will only ever rise as high as the word that is fed to them and will only raise up the men that are necessary to feed it when those men are demanded to feed our children and our children's children and the nations. By God's grace, this psalm should allow us one sure step in the right direction for this battle to reform the church in an increasingly depraved world. But before we begin with the text, I would like to set the stage with a question, a question that Jesus Christ asked Peter in Matthew 16 and the disciples at large. He said, but who do you say that I am? Now, uh, this is really what I want you to have continually in your mind. As we go through each piece of this text, I want you to continually be asking this because who you say God is as you examine yourself, uh, how you view God, what, what you know God to be, is what will make or break you in this life. As God says in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Lack of knowledge of what? Of God, of himself. 
And when God is judging the righteous and the wicked justly in Psalm 50, he gives this sharp correction to the wicked in the middle of verse 21. He says, you thought that I was just like you. Implication, you made a mistake. And this is one of the most significant warnings that I can give you in our day and age. Because one of the severe pains in the church today is that we do not know who God truly is. For if we did, the church at large would act much differently than it does. And that gives us an essential backdrop as we look to see what our Lord and Savior has to teach us today from this great text of Psalm chapter 93. Read the text with me, please. This is God's holy word. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is, is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. More than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. The Lord reigns. This is not a unique text. Let me prove it to you. Psalm chapter 96, verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Psalm 99, verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. Or my personal favorite, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 31. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. These are some of the most foundational words in all of Holy Scripture. God is king with omnipotent power and sovereign control over the world. This is the ultimate truth, the truth that presupposes all other truths. There is no ambiguity, no need for questioning. Our God is over every idol, every created being, and every pretender of sovereignty that there is. In the Hebrew text, the wording is actually so emphatic that if you and I were trying to be as literal in translation, it would demand an exclamation mark after the third word in this text. This is the sovereignty of God. Now, the sovereignty of God expresses his supreme rulership, which is abundantly declared in Scripture. And God is absolutely sovereign because if he was not, then he could not be God. I want you to think about it this way. He must be sovereign in order to be what he says he is, do what he has said he has done, and fulfill what he has promised to come. I mean, can you imagine a, a mostly sovereign God or, or a, a somewhat sovereign God that, that needed your help to make the plan succeed? How much trust could you put in a mostly sovereign God that has most of the power? Would he be able to guarantee your salvation? Would he be able to guarantee that your foot would not stumble and slip? God has never had a backup plan. He's never had to go to plan B. God, God has never had to think through some complex issue in order to hopefully find a solution. God simply and has always ruled every moment, every one, and everything. 
He is under no external restraint whatsoever. There are no hoops that he has to jump through. No one that he must keep happy in order to keep his position. No one, uh, no balancing of priorities to ensure that his reign continues steadily. He has reigned. He is reigning. And he will forever reign. Our God reigns. When speaking of God's sovereignty, A.W. Pink said this, quote, God is subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, always as he pleases, only as he pleases, end quote. <laughs> I love that quote. When God speaks of his sovereignty, he says it this way, Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. He says, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. How? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Not I might, not if you come along with me, it's going to happen. Not if I, if I can really wrestle the devil down, I'm going to make it. I will. The Lord reigns. Now, this should be a saying that we whisper to the weak at heart and that we declare boldly to our great God's enemies. These are the words that keep us resolute during periods of trial and tribulation. These words are the words that give us hope when life feels and seems so out of control. You see, we live out a faith that is not so much about what we feel as it is what we know. Remember Jeremiah 17, 9. The, the, the heart is deceitful above all else. It is desperately wicked, sick. Who can understand it? Answer, no one. You and I don't understand our hearts. How much more should we trust them as opposed to trusting God? We do not trust our feelings. We do not trust our circumstances or our surroundings. We don't, we don't trust our, our friendships, our finances, our jobs, our resources. We trust in God alone. And this text grounds us in why that trust is duly deserved. If you look at the text in verse 1, it continues and it says, He is clothed with majesty. What does this mean? It means that he is adorned with garments that are fitting to match and show his sovereignty. Majesty and strength surround and mark him as our clothing marks us. Think of it as you're driving down the highway. If you and I see cop lights go off, nothing needs to be said. There's no questions. Everyone knows who's in charge, right? It's, it's emanating. It's understood. It's immediate. Now, in the world's history, as monarchs wished to distinguish themselves as royalty the others, they would seat themselves on a magnificent stately throne that was higher than all else, so they would look down on everyone. They had a procession of singers and musicians and jesters and fanfare and crowds that would sit, stare, and wait on every word that they said with loud proclamations of their coming, their going, their sitting, their standing, with the most regal and expensive clothing money could buy. These are but a minute speck of an illustration 
of how high and mighty and lifted up is the reign of our sovereign Lord. But not only is he clothed with majesty, as you continue in the text, when you see that he has girded himself with strength, he is prepared to do battle with all who oppose him, and none will be able to stand against him as he is the omnipotent one. All of this is trying to show us truly that God is holy. God, God is set apart. He is not like anyone or anything else. And thus he has no comparison, no competition. Or in his own words, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, to whom will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. So God is clothed with majesty and strength. And the idea being really here that he's exuding these things. They, they emanate from and are controlled entirely by God. This is depicted in the final line of verse 1 as you look. It says, indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. God's strength and majesty are not only displayed by his person, by, by who he is, but also by what he does. In his strength and majesty, he has constructed a firmly established world that cannot be moved unless he decides let me illustrate it for you. The world is firmly established. It's thus trustworthy. Uh, when you go home today, uh, I doubt any of you, as you go to sit on your couch and you're falling onto the couch, are going to really hope that gravity keeps working. None of you are going to start falling and hope you really don't start floating away. I mean, you might now that I said something, but before I said something, you weren't going to do that. Why? You have an implicit childlike faith in gravity. You don't even question it. You were a kid and you just knew it was. As an adult, you maybe understand a little more. You went to a science class, someone told it, maybe you liked it, maybe you didn't. It doesn't matter if you liked it. It doesn't matter if you did. You trust it every day without question. No, no, no. If that has that much control in your life, that much trust in your life, how much more does the God who made the earth and firmly established it with those laws deserve your everlasting trust? Now, as we look at verse 2, you'll begin to see an even further argument for the psalmist on why the Lord is trustworthy. Read with me verse 2. It says, Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Your throne is established from of old. I want you to see that not only is the world established, fixed, and immovable, but the very throne of God is resolutely, perfectly established. God's reign is without challenge. Though there are those who will rebel against his mighty reign, success is not even an option for the but dust that stands defiantly before our God. God's throne is not dependent on popular vote or how are you or I feel about him or, or, or his circumstances or surroundings. His throne is not dependent on external power or grandeur or majesty or authority. He doesn't have to negotiate with anybody. He simply reigns. 
And while every earthly throne is destined to one day deteriorate, fall, and be replaced by another, there is no other, there is no replacement, there is no deterioration of God's throne. The rulers of this world will fail you. They are set up to be cast down and do not deserve your everlasting trust. But our God, our King, sits on an unchangeable, eternal, and never-ending throne. Before creation, his throne was, and after all of creation is destroyed and reconstituted into the new heaven and new earth, his throne will still be. From eternity past to eternity future, the Lord's throne is self-existent, self-sufficient, immutable, transcendent, holy, and incomprehensible. He is our sovereign and holy God. And he is king. God's throne or his seat of honor, royal power and dignity and authority is established or it's firm, stable, secure, enduring, determined, unwavering, unyielding, resolute, fixed. And it is established from of old, from before time began, from before creation, from before even the angelic beings. God's throne is immovable, irrevocable, and infinite. As Moses says in Psalm 90, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And in our text, at the end of verse 2, it says you are from everlasting. This is the eternity of God, God's infinitude and his existence outside of and independence from time, space, and matter are on display here. Now, to understand this more fully, we first have to understand time. Because time marks the beginning of created existence. And because God never began to exist, time has no application to him. To show you another example, all of creation is always becoming. You and I are becoming older, bigger, smaller, hopefully smarter sometimes. Trees are becoming something different in every season, whether they are becoming dormant for the winter, blooming, blossoming in the spring, flourishing in the summer, or beautifully shedding in the fall. These are all the effects of time. You see, God is everlasting, though. As the angels say it, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, what does that mean? Because you and I, we can look at the past and it makes sense, present, yep, future, yep, we can even conceptualize eternity past and eternity future. Okay, forever that way, forever this way, I got it. What can be hard to understand about our holy God is that he lives in an everlasting now. He has no past, no future. To quote A.W. Tozer on this, quote, God dwells in eternity, but time dwells in God. He has already lived all our tomorrows as he has lived all our yesterdays, end quote. <laughs> now let that sink in for a moment while I borrow an illustration from C.S. Lewis. If we were to take an infinitely long sheet of paper and you and I made a nice little scratch mark with a crayon on it, crayons because I have toddlers, and that scratch mark represents time. 
And the infinitely long paper represents eternity. Just as that mark begins and ends on the paper, so time has begun and will end one day within God. Time has no power over God. That's hard for us to understand because time runs our lives. He created and continues time as long as it fits within his good pleasure. This is the sovereign, unbreakable, incomparable rule of Almighty God. God has no beginning. He is uncreated. He is holy. He is God. And he reigns. And pitted against mighty, the mighty reign of God, we now begin to see the opposition. Read with me verses 3 and 4. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. More than the sounds of many waters and the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. I don't know if you've ever been out sailing in the deep ocean before. But the mere gravitas of, of seeing how powerful the water is of how infinitely deep it seems, how mysterious the depths and its inhabitants are, how fearfully we can all look at it with its creatures that can overtake us in an instant. The mighty ocean used to be much more frightful just a couple hundred years ago when sailing across the Atlantic or Pacific was a months-long journey that almost guaranteed death depending on who you're sailing with. But what we don't understand is Israel. God's people in this context and how they would have viewed this because they they would have viewed the chaotic waters with a fear with with a dread with an awe and a wonder that you and I can't even conceptualize truly the waters were the ultimate fear of the Israelites now if you look at the text again count how many times the floods are lifted up If you're fast, you'll say three. If not, I helped you. (laughs) Now, why three times, right? That seems redundant. That seems repetitive. Why would you say the same things three times in a row? I mean, you want to tell three stories in a row? Jesus, say the same parable three times in a row? I get it. You said different stories. Why did you say the same thing three times in a row, back to back to back? Now, this is a literary trick from ancient Hebraic literature. And here's the idea. As a a Hebrew poet wanted to add emphasis and then overemphasis, they would add the same line again and again. And so what you're seeing here is you're seeing the world, the flesh, and the devil. You're seeing the nations, the, the haters of God and the despondent chain themselves together in an eternal enmity with God, prepared to do war. The raging waters lift their voice, and their power seemingly overwhelming to us mere creatures. Yet when the powerful roar of the flood cries out, They are most comparable to the mighty squeak of the mouse in your walls when compared to the voice of Almighty God, which is comparable to nothing. Let me explain. Genesis chapter 1, God spoke and it was. What was? Everything was. 
Now, you and I, we can make light of that. We've heard that since we were a child. We've heard that since we first became a Christian. It's a lot of energy to speak, right? Not as much maybe to lift a, as it is to lift a boulder. And yet, God, who could have used anything and everything to create, chose his voice. God's voice and command alone were all he chose to use to create everything. He did not need any particles or matter beforehand to help him. He, he didn't need to take a deep breath in between days to, to kind of get ready for the next one. He didn't need extra days to subdue his creation or his sovereign will after he made it. His creation was not incomplete when he made it. There was no other outcome possible once he spoke. When God speaks, what he says is, happens, and becomes, period. So although you and I often find ourselves with the disciples, fearing the winds and the waves, when we should be keeping our eyes on our sovereign king, who is entirely in control, we must remind ourselves of our Savior's absolute authority over all. Think of it even further. Mark chapter 4, verses 37 through 40 states, And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. We're in trouble, right? It's not going well. We're going to die. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Peace in control. Not worried at all. You and I, dying, peeing ourselves. Not going to make it. Jesus asleep on the back. Now, they woke him, as you and I, God help us please, and said, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Again, we're accusing God of something, you and I also to blame for that many times. And he got up, he doesn't say anything to them at all. He doesn't, he doesn't say, he doesn't rebuke them at that moment. <laughs> he gets up, he rebukes the wind and said to the sea, hush be still. Now, I want you to just think about this for a second. I have toddlers, right? We're training them in the Lord. Um, and if I say hush, be still on a good day, it works. Um, on a bad day, I got some more coaching to do. Um, the infinitely insane sea that was going to kill a dozen men that were used to being on this sea, that lived their lives on it. He says, hush, be still. And everything goes silent. And then he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And this is you and I sitting in our lives. And the storms come and life attacks and the world, the flesh, and the devil and impose themselves onto us in every way possible. And we must remind ourselves of Jesus on the cushion in the back seat, resting at ease. And if my Savior is resting at ease, if the one who's in control, who keeps me, is resting at ease, why should I fear? What right do I have to be afraid? This is the God-man, Jesus Christ, the, the preeminent one, putting on display the fearful might of the roaring seas, man's contagious anxiety over such power, 
and God's simple, calm voice stopping everything immediately. There are no questions asked. The wind and the waves obey right away, completely, without argument or putting up a fight. The only response to the very voice of God is perfect, immediate, final submission. The sea with all its power is nothing in comparison to the power of God. Or as Colossians 1.17 tells us, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. There is nothing that our God, our Lord, our Savior is not preeminent, creator, and ruler over. And I want you to note that God's might is what assures the permanence and immutability of his rule. Now, there are two things to see about the floods here. Explicitly, this text is showing us the floods, which is a reference to the primeval chaotic waters that are tamed and assigned a place by the Lord's creative word. And I want you to see that no matter how powerful and awe-striking the winds and the waves are, the Lord has set their boundary. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 22 says, Do you not fear me, declares the Lord. Now, he's going to put his argument forth. God is going to put his argument forth as to why you should fear him. Listen. Do you not tremble in my presence? Added emphasis. For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree so it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. I want you to know that there's not a wave that crests, a riptide that pools, or a tsunami that engulfs that he has not sovereignly allowed. The greatest power of this world, the mighty sea, is created, limited, obedient to, and controlled by Almighty God. The only exalted one. There is no hurricane No flood, no tornado, no disaster of any kind that has surprised him ever, that has ever caught him off guard, that has circumvented his authority. He is perfectly sovereign over this physical earth in all of its mighty and majestic power. From the smallest microbe to the Leviathan of Job, our God reigns. Now, implicitly, the floods symbolize all that opposes the coming of the Lord's kingdom. In ancient times, floods were seen as a symbol of the forces of chaos and evil. And since he created the world, the Lord has shown himself to be mightier than all the forces of disorder that threaten his kingdom. Now, the floods can also typify the restless fretfulness of this world against the Lord. In Romans 1, you and I learn that everyone knows of God. Everyone does. But the world's real busy trying to live their best life now and think about eternity later. They will run to and fro and wreak complete havoc, seeking to indulge their every desire so as to medicate, distract, entertain, and satisfy themselves to death because it's exactly what they want. And much like the chaotic chaotic waves of the sea crashing all about, so the world runs to and fro, seeking fulfillment, seeking purpose and eternity and the things it wishes to have as opposed to the God that has all these things and controls them all. 
in these verses, we see the words mighty and lifted up. And I want you to know that there has been power given to those who run this world for now. They will grab as much power as they can and exalt themselves as much as they can as to make the most of this moment of self-glorification. The problem is that in comparison with the might, the splendor, the glory, the exalted reign of God Almighty, they are nothing. Daniel chapter 4 verse 35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? This world system and the ruler of it, the devil himself, are much like the sea to us in this word picture. God has graced us to be able to see this truth today. And still, you and I must continually renew our minds in this truth. It is so easy to become overwhelmed, fearful, and submissive to indwelling sin, the world system and the fiery darts of the enemy. You must ground yourself. You must ground your family. You must ground all those who God places in your life with this unshakable truth. The world may have an influential power for now, but God has always been and will always be perfectly in control. Ruling over and sovereignly allowing only those things which are for the good of God's people and are for his glory. Even the evil things of this world, he turns out for good. So we must be able to look at our lives, even the moments when we suffer, when life sucks, when we fail, when we fall, when we're lied about, persecuted and hated. And we must stand with Joseph and say, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And as trustworthy, invincible, and resolute as the reign of our God, so also is his perfect word. Read with me verse 5. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. I want you first to see that nothing is more sure than God's revelation. And at the same time, nothing is more appropriate than holiness in the house of God. This includes not only this gathering place, but our bodies as well, which are a temple of the living God. So while his power inspires a, a holy fear, his revealed word and his promises should secure our confidence. And thus, when you and I worship, it should be this mixture of fear and love that produces a holy worship of a holy God. And this is both corporately and personally. Now, in the same way that God's indisputable rule has made the world secure, he has given his people's decrees, commandments, laws, and stable, reliable truths, which are thus secure for us. And, and going back to our earlier illustration, as much as you and I trust that gravity will not stop working tomorrow, you should trust that every single word, every letter of Holy Scripture is without error, without fault, is inspired by God, that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, that the Scriptures cannot be broken, that Scripture is sufficient for our every need, and that Scripture is our final authority in all matters. In a day and age where psychology, self-help, motivational feel-good speeches, and quote-unquote new revelations from God are trying to outweigh Scripture, 
and are a dime a dozen. We need to hear this about God's word. Here are six defining characteristics of Scripture that are found in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9. Number one, Scripture is perfect, restoring the soul. Number two, Scripture is trustworthy, imparting wisdom. Number three, Scripture is right, causing joy. Number four, Scripture is pure, enlightening the eyes. Number five, Scripture is clean, enduring forever. And number six, Scripture is true, altogether righteous. And that reference is Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9. Now, do you and I act as though Scripture is perfect, trustworthy, right, pure, clean, and true? If we do not, or rather, when we do not, we should not be surprised that our souls are in need of restoration, that we are lacking wisdom, joy, and righteousness, and that our eyes feel darkened. For we have turned from the forever source of light and life. Now, because God's word is perfectly sufficient, completely reliable, and worthy of the highest honor and attention, we must say with Peter, where else will we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Now, in step with the fact that God's word is holy is the command that God's people be holy. I want you to know that this command will never cease. It, it will never ease it will never waver because God is infinitely holy when you and I are glorified on that final day and spend eternity future in a pure, holy, worshipful bliss. It will be with holy hands and holy eyes and holy tongues that we will worship and enjoy our great God. You and I tend to think of heaven as time. It's not it's not time. It's quality. It's time forever gone and just a continual, perpetual existence of worshipful, pure bliss. And for those whom God has chosen, it will be the greatest reward. One that's worth dying for in this life. One that's worth giving up popularity in this life. Now I want you to see that the atmosphere of God's eternal reign is, is holiness, or a better way of saying it might be that, that holiness will be the oxygen of heaven. Meanwhile, God's perfect moral character highlights his glory and can be seen everywhere. God will never do anything that is not morally perfect. This reassures us that we can trust him, yet it also places a demand on us. The only suitable response for us is to not only desire, but to pursue holiness. We must never, for pragmatic or practical purposes, use unholy means to reach a holy goal. Because God says, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. The holiness that God imparts to his house and to his people, is as permanent and as immutable or unchangeable as he is. God keeps us, blesses us, and provides for us through his word. And when we as God's people follow the commands of our Lord and hold fast to his decrees, we are witnessing to and attesting to his kingship 
over all of creation. <laughs> As we live lives of holiness for God's glory, we're like walking beacons that signal to everyone and everything that God reigns. We're, we're little mirrors that reflect almighty God's glory-filled preeminent reign. Your life and my life should always say, God's reign is forever and his word is forever. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 states, In the year of King Uzziah di- of Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Our God reigns in the deepest, darkest moments when everything goes wrong, when nothing seems to even go right, when everyone hates what you say because you stand for the truth, when you lose friends, when the sword of truth divides your family, when you suffer for the cross, you must, with Isaiah, look up. And in that moment of suffering, see your God reigning. Our God reigns. He is magnificent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, ever-present, never-changing, creator of, sustainer of, and ruler of all. What must our response be to this great truth? I'm going to use 1 Thessalonians 5.14 as a, as a springboard. It says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So do you who are weary, discouraged, and drained, I understand, be encouraged and remind yourself that the Lord reigns. He, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will not allow your foot to slip. He will keep you until the final day. Rest in your sovereign king's rule. To you who are backsliding, unrepentant in sin, and ignoring the provocation of the Holy Spirit, Remind yourself that the Lord reigns, and in holy fear and shame of your sin, repent and believe the gospel. Do not waste your life in the silly things of this world. Do not allow yourself to be deceived by the lying nature of sin. God's way is not only the best way for you, but it's the only way for you. You must choose the path of life. And to you who are far off, who are distant, who are unsure of God, not sure. Believe that his promises are true because he reigns. And that if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. He can never lie. He will save you from the wicked slave master called sin and will make you a slave of Christ. He will give you a new heart with new desires and new priorities. He will send the Holy Spirit to dwell in you, our great strength, comforter, and teacher. And as I said earlier this week and decided to put in here, our greatest dilemma is that God is good. He is holy Because he is holy and we have sinned, 
we must, he must be just and punish our sin. But you and I are completely unable to save ourselves. We, we bring nothing of worth to our salvation. The best that we have is filthy rags. And yet, because of the great love with which he loved us, Christ died for you, his sheep, while you were still a sinner, a hater of God. Christ lived a perfect life as fully God and fully man and was the perfect substitute to pay the penalty that you and I deserve. He died, rose again, and has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has opened wide the doors of grace and shouts with all of his might for all to turn from their rebellion, to turn from their idols, from their sin, and to flee to Christ, to believe in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins and to confess him as Lord and as Savior. He promises eternal life to all who come to him. The world gives you a water that leaves you thirsty. Trust me, I indulged in everything that there was. It never satisfies. And yet, Christ said, he will give you a water. He is the water that eternally satisfies. The aching in your heart, the emptiness, the purposelessness, there's only one hole, and it's a Jesus Christ-filled hole. You can spend your life seeking all the things in the world, and you will come up empty, dead. Will you not choose to turn from living death to satisfy yourself to living a dying life for your Lord and Savior? Your purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is your purpose. Much like a hammer's purpose is to <laughs> push a nail into a wall. If you and I saw a hammer that was trying to be a sink, we'd tell you, buddy, I'm, I'm sorry. That's not what you're supposed to do. I want you to choose love. I want you to choose life. I want you to choose peace with the sovereign, immovable, unbreakable God that we have learned about today. And lastly, to you who are growing and stumbling forward in sanctification, I understand that as well. Be determined and run this race for your king with all your might. Because your God reigns. You only have one life to live for your God and your king. Put off the besetting sins that so easily entangle us. Discipline yourself for godliness and be patient in long-suffering with the weak. And say with Paul, I strive according to the power of Christ which works mightily within me. And now we go back to our initial question that you probably forgot. 
who do you say that he is? The God-man, Jesus Christ. Is he Lord and Savior? At the end of this life, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Some will be doing it for the first time ever in fear and dread. Others will be doing it in joy and exaltation, finally free, with a life that proclaimed he was Lord and Savior. I pray that you will be the latter and not the former. Because as we have seen, the Lord reigns. He reigns majestically, powerfully, and forevermore. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you use broken vessels like me to be able to communicate your truth. I ask, Lord, that whatever is redeemable of what I have said, whatever is true, may that stick and Lord, please convict our hearts. Please change us. Please help us to grow. Please help us to put off sin, to resist the devil, and to live our lives for you. When we feel downtrodden, please help us to be reminded that our God reigns. When we feel indignant and despondent in our sin, remind us that you reign. Lord, please discipline us when we are wayward. Please encourage us when we fall short. And please help us to be your hands and feet to this body, both locally and abroad. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.